Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for the word of God and we appreciate the words of Jesus. He is protecting us from being misled, wrong, lost. So what he says here in these texts today are so important. Just ask for your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I told you we wouldn't quite leave where we were last time because uh, it's so important. We've been studying the words of Jesus on the subject of the spiritual leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, and all of Matthew 23 is devoted to them. And Matthew's only 28 chapters long, so to have an entire chapter devoted to these individuals is significant. It's a significant portion of the teaching we have from Jesus during the last week of his life on earth. So why is that important? Why, why spend all this time on Pharisees? We don't even have Pharisees around anymore. Exactly. <laughs> um, it, the reason it's important is because they represent so much of what religion is in all ages and in all times. And religion is not enough. That's why there's a whole chapter about this. Religion does not reconcile a man to God. Religion does not save. The, the Pharisees, Jesus pointed out, they sat in the seat of Moses. They were committed to honoring the book, the revelation of God through Moses. They were Bible men, and they prayed. They were known for their long prayers, public prayers. And people respected them. They seemed holy. They acted holy. They knew all about the scriptures. And Jesus just shreds them. You have to remember this. Jesus exposes their whole way of life as one of hypocrisy. When the Son of God examined them, he did not see faith. He didn't see a saving faith. He didn't see a relationship with God. He saw acting. And that's what hypocrisy literally means, acting. It wasn't real. It was a show. It was a very convincing show. But Jesus evaluated them and said... Verse 15, they're children of hell, calls them hypocrites eight times at least, blind guides, verse 24, lawless, verse 28, a brood of vipers, verse 33. So they were lost, and we have to understand why they were lost, because what if, what if at the end when our, our bodies fail and we surrender our souls to God, he concludes that our religion was not genuine? You don't want that to happen, so we need to know. We need to know what, what it means to be genuine. How do we know if we're genuine? How do we know if we've done it right? What is the right way? What is God actually looking for? Those are the most pressing questions a human being can ask and have answered. So God looked at the Pharisees and he saw religion and that was nothing. So you can't be right with God by acting apart. I mean, the one thing we say about acting or hypocrisy is that it's a put on. I mean, that's the whole idea of acting, right? It's a method, it's a technique, it's an appearance. It's not genuine. Why do we give awards to people on um, television and in the movies and all these things and on Broadway? We give them big awards for being the best pretenders, <laughs> actors, you know? We praise them. We praise them for seeming genuine, knowing that they're really not. We need to grasp how helpful Jesus is in repeating the use of that word throughout this whole chapter. Actor, 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 hypocrite, hypocrite. Living for God 
cannot be a performance. And I don't think the Pharisees thought of themselves as performers at all. I think they found that word hypocrite or actor completely offensive when Jesus said it because they got their self-righteous feathers all ruffled. It made them hate Jesus that he said that. And of all people, they believed in their own righteousness. But God looked at it and said they were acting. Hypocrites don't usually know that's what they are. Because sin is blinding. It blinds us. But God's looking and he sees the inter interior motives. What's driving them. What's driving their religion, their behavior, their law keeping, their prayers, their goodness. And it was for men, not for him. Arrogant people very often don't know they're arrogant. They really believe they're superior. <laughs> I do it better. I have more diligence. I tithe more. I pay more. I am better. In their heart, that's what they believe. But Jesus says they're acting. So how do you tell someone they're acting when they don't know they are? Well, Jesus does that through this whole chapter. He just gives them tons of examples very specific ways they were acting and not doing what God actually wanted them to do. And he proves that their religion is not about God, it's about them. And basically he says, genuine doesn't do this. Genuine doesn't do this or this. He just goes right down the whole line there. I'm not gonna go back over it all. Get the message from last week online if you missed it. But that's what exactly you Pharisees are doing, he says. Genuine doesn't do this and you do do this. You neglect justice and mercy. You neglect taking care of your parents. You neglect this and that. So how do we know if we're genuine? What is God actually looking for? I think it's helpful for today to just look at the last part of Jesus' discourse that we looked at last time um, where he talks in terms of inside and outside. Inside and outside. So we mentioned the Pharisees that they were all about being clean. They were really into ceremonial washings. No dirty fingers among them. Let me see your hands. They, they'd show them right away because their hands are all clean. No, no dirty fingernails or anything. So clean bodies. Look at verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, actors, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so the outside may become clean also. So Jesus is saying there's an order to being clean. You clean the inside first. Now he's not talking about cups. He's not talking about dishes. He's talking about humans. You get that, right? He's talking about human beings. Having a clean outside is not what is needed. What's needed first is having a clean inside. Inside. Verse 27, he gets even more vivid using the example of whitewashed tombs. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So you can have a lovely outside, a very respectable presentation. You can be admired by people for your goodness, outwardly appearing righteous, but inwardly full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Well, how can you be lawless if you don't do things wrong? 
the desires of the heart, the motives of the heart, the thoughts of the mind, those things do come out in various ways and Jesus points out some of those ways but inwardly there's tons of gunk that's a technical theological word for your sin there's all kinds of gunk inside so what is going on inside I mean that's what matters and that's where rebellion lies that's where covetousness lies that's where lust lies that's where greed comes from feelings of superiority that's where all of that is on the inside it's in the heart all sins come from the heart Back in Matthew chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus said, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile a man. That's where corruption lies, inside. And that's why getting clean has to start on the inside because the heart is the source of all this sin and corruption. All human beings have a profound internal corruption so their basic nature from birth is against godliness. That's how we're wired since man fell. Religious, yeah. Heart inclined toward the living God, no. That's not normal, that's not natural. Psalm 14 says, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there were any who understand, who seek after God, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's what God sees. So you must not exempt yourself from this fundamental understanding of human nature. We're all corrupted. We're all twisted in some way, in many ways. Pride, the desire to go our own way no matter what the Creator's will is. That's the source of evil in the world. I mean, gross evils like murder and genocide and trafficking human beings for immoral purposes and, and all the subtle daily sort of evils, selfishness and manipulation and unkindness and unforgiveness and using people. Most people don't care at all if they're a fountain of subtle daily evils. In fact, most people like it that way. But it is corruption in God's eyes. It's, it's moral pollution in his universe, which is much worse than the filth and the toxins that we spew out into the physical environment. It's much worse to be morally polluted. God is pure goodness. Pure goodness and infinitely powerful. And he really hates evil. So we can try to justify all kinds of sin or, or, or just ignore our sin, but there's actually a day of reckoning because you are going to die and you are going to surrender your soul, your spirit to God for judgment. But let's say something really amazing happens to a person. Let's say we start to realize that the corruption really is in us and we're responsible for it. Let's say we're really disappointed in ourselves morally all of a sudden. We experience guilt. We stop excusing ourselves. We see that we are hurting people or using people. We understand that we're not living as our holy creator designed us to live. We start to see that God is perfectly right to be angry at me. We actually become aware that we need to be clean, that the inside of the cup needs to be washed. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we came to that conclusion? So then the question is, how do you get clean on the inside? 
That's the question. How do you clean your heart? Well, the big answer is you can't. How can a dirty heart cleanse itself? Well, it really can't, but God can. And that's exactly what he does. So the how for us is to give him our lives and our insights to cleanse and plead with him and work with him to do that cleansing work. If you come to the realization that your heart is not clean and that upsets you and you want to cleanse it, that's a wonderful thing. And that's, that in itself is a sign that God is at work in you and he's ready to work. And you probably have a sense of what you should do, but let me just spell it out to you really clearly. You need to surrender. Lay down your weapons, lay down self, put off pride, and humble yourself. That's the key idea in becoming internally cleansed, is to humble yourself before God. At the end of his great book, the, the prophet Isaiah, in the very last chapter, you need to, says you need to humble yourself before God. And he says, he quotes um, the Lord, of course, is speaking through him, and, he's, and God says, my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Most people don't tremble at God's word at all, ever. They're not humble, they're not contrite. A humble and contrite spirit. You kind of knew, didn't you? That's what it was, that's what he was looking for, but... He says it because we lie to ourselves. It's the only way you have to humble yourself. God is good, you are guilty, and the day you cease being defiant and humble yourself before God, that is the day he will cleanse your heart. To tremble at his word means that you see the commandments, you see what he tells us, and you've fallen so far short, and you know it, and you grieve that. It goes right back to the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those with poverty of spirit who know, blessed are those who mourn, who realize. You realize God is your maker and judge and you are a wretched, corrupt creature. And all that matters now is that what he wants from you and the first thing he wants is for you to humble yourself. Yes, Lord, I am vile in your eyes. I hate what I am and what I have done. That's the beginning. You don't look at other people. You don't compare with so-and-so. It's you and a holy God. Turn over to Luke chapter 18. There's a Pharisee story there that doesn't appear in Matthew. Pretty typical Pharisee. He's praying his prayers. He's very religious. He's in the temple. But his prayers are kind of interesting. This Pharisee in Luke 18, which Jesus is presenting to us, is, uh, he's a comparing man. He likes to compare himself with other people. He doesn't look at the inside of himself. He doesn't look at his wretched heart. No, he looks at a guy that's nearby who's on his knees, a notorious man, a tax collector, a traitor to Israel, a disreputable person in society, somebody not welcome in proper homes. In Luke 18, verse 10, it says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. <laughs> That's a really interesting thing for Jesus to say that he was praying to himself. I'm sure he thought he was praying to God. 
But he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, the unjust, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. So he doesn't look inside at all. He only considers that he keeps certain rules. He doesn't weigh the proudness of his heart or his arrogance or his internal corruption. Do you see any humility in this man? I don't either. He's not humble. He's not contrite of spirit. He doesn't tremble at God's word. And the man he despises is completely different. There's humility in his eyes. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. Why, why wouldn't he look up? Because he wasn't worthy and he knew it. A humble and contrite heart. Jesus tells us more about this man. His eyes were cast down in humility, but his hand, his hand, he says, he was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So this is a man who has a humble and contrite heart and who trembles at God's word. What's the result of the prayers of these two men? It's very significant. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. He was justified. That means he was right with God. And the Pharisee was not right with God. The tax collector was a forgiven man. So now we're talking about cleansing, right? Getting clean. There's, there's really two ideas about becoming clean before God. Two different separate ideas. And they really relate to that word justify and also the word we use sanctify. Justify means being right with God in his eyes. Sanctify means doing right having that come out in your life. So the first aspect is to be purified from your guilt. It's the blood of Jesus that makes that possible. The Bible says he died the just for the unjust, that he became a curse for us, another place says, and he became sin on our behalf, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So whatever our sins deserved, Christ took it on himself, paid the price, which was death, and that cleanses us before God. We are clean in his eyes. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, it says, if we, say, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's exactly what that Pharisee was doing. I have fellowship with God. But he walks in darkness. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So forgiveness is to stand before God as clean, clean in his eyes. That's huge, to actually be forgiven by God, to have your sins erased, stop, blotted off the blotter pad, you know? Gone, your name's not there anymore. Record expunged, the debt to justice marked paid. So that's the one sense where we're clean before God, holy in his eyes through Christ's atoning blood. But what about that evil that's in us? that corruption, well, that's the other sense that we use the word clean, 
this internal cleansing where we actually start to change. This justified person actually starts to be a different person. That tax collector did not go home justified and do everything he was doing before and make no changes. Because that can't happen when you're justified. When you're justified, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and he starts working you and making changes. You can push back a little bit against him, but he's going to work. God disciplines every son he loves, the Bible says. So the Spirit does this incredible work. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from guilt. The Holy Spirit works a process in us to cleanse us, cleanse, clean out the filth that's in our hearts. He starts actually cleaning our thoughts. He starts cleaning our desires, our actions. We start to love things we didn't used to appreciate very much that are holy and good, and we start to hate things that we used to really get into and, and ponder and enjoy and hold close to our hearts And because they're wicked. We let them go, and there's this incredible promise in the book of Ezekiel about um, the, the new covenant, and uh, Ezekiel 36, 25, and God promises, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. See, that's an internal cleansing, isn't it? It's not just being right before God. It's there's something new in me and I want to obey God. I want to serve him. I want to obey his commandments. These are all things God does. I will do this. I will do that. I will do this. He's going to work in us. That's what happens to anyone who humbles themselves before God and embraces Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They are cleansed and they are changed. And it's not just a psychological thing. It's a spiritual reality. The power of God enters into a human life and changes it. And you become a different person with different desires and interests. It's such a big change. It's kind of like being born again. That's a word Jesus used with Nicodemus, right? This new life, this new heart, this soft heart thing, that happens right away. This new life begins. Your world is different. You know God. He knows you. The Spirit comes to live in you and teach you. And life is not going to be the same because you are not going to be the same. In fact, it's so much like a new birth. This, this new principle of life actually begins really small. It's real, but it's small. And it has to grow like a newborn, continuing the process of maturing physically and cognitively. The essential element to growth and spiritual maturity um, is very much like a child starting as a baby and growing physically, you know, going through that whole thing. Now, a malnourished child, are they going to grow as well as a well-nourished child? Are they going to um, prosper physically and cognitively and in all the developmental ways? No, of course not. So a spiritual newborn has to be nourished as well. You might think of some Bible verses that pop to mind about that. Peter says, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. It's the word of God. Not just having it on your shelf or kind of reading through it every day, but taking the word of God and letting it shape you and mold you because the Holy Spirit uses the word to... to shape your life. The word of God becomes that nourishment by which if we take it in 
and let it shape us. It transforms us. We think differently. We're quick to repent. We start noticing areas of filth in us that we didn't even know was there and start working it out. If you read the word as nourishment, you'll find that growth and maturity come because God has given you his spirit, which shapes your heart. Now, this is a process, right? That part's a process. When you come to Jesus, you are clean in the eyes of God before his just holy standards. You are forgiven. But it's a process to change your life. That takes time. You have to learn to crawl before you can walk, as they say. So you start with something wonderfully new already that happens in you. You've got a new heart. But that new heart has to learn and grow and change. So we're all going to stumble along the way. And while maturity in Christ is possible for anybody with a new heart, one thing that's not possible is perfection. So don't expect to be perfect until you die and go to heaven where all is in perfection. We're still in the flesh. The Bible is so clear. Every Christian lives in a battle between the spirit and the flesh. We all sin. And in this battle, the heart can collect soils and toxins and filth and grime and stuff like that. What do we do with those? How do we defeat sin? Well, we we go down the same path that started us, and that's humility before God. That's what you do with those sins. We have that example from the very beginning of our own spiritual walk with Christ. When we were that sinner beating our breast with downcast eyes and we found forgiveness and new life in Jesus, that's the same humility God wants to see you exercise throughout your life. Humble yourself before God daily. Daily do that. It's a process. James lays out the plan a little bit in his uh, chapter four of his little letter in the New Testament. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. He has the same exact thing to say. Don't keep God distant. Draw near to him and grieve. Grieve sin in your life. And as you draw near to God, you will see your sin the way he does and it will cause you to grieve. It will humble you and you'll become a humble servant who desires God's glory above your own particular desires for sin. And you give him your sin and you ask him every day to cleanse your heart and set you free and he'll do it. I am a living witness. He's done that to me. Am I perfect? No. It's a daily process, isn't it? But things you thought could never be worked out of your life, they can be gone. I mean gone. Some might hang around a little bit. You might have to fight them for the rest of your life a little bit. But God will be faithful if you humble yourself before him. In the Bible, King David sinned a very great sin, as you know, um, committed adultery and really set up the woman's husband to be murdered and um, he let it go he let it go for almost a year he didn't deal with it and finally God sent him a man to confront him and he repented he truly repented and David left us his prayer it's Psalm 51 I'm going to read it for you the whole thing and I just want you to listen for just the, the themes we talked about already this morning in that psalm Psalm 51 This is what David prayed. Be gracious to me, O God, 
according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and you are blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me no wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will sing joyfully of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's how it ends. With a broken spirit and a contrite heart. So it always comes back to that. That's where he wants to bring us back to that every day. If we're broken over our sin and apply to him for his saving mercy, that's a sign that we're genuine. If we draw near to God, he will do that for us. He'll break our hearts first and then he'll heal us and bring us joy. So ask him as you draw near to search your heart, to to reveal sin, to reveal pride and unkindness and disobedience and all sin. Be open to correction by him. That, that change he brings is an important part of your assurance that you're a genuine child of God. A Christian should know whether or not he or she is genuine. We should know that. And there are many factors that cause some Christians, genuine Christians, to doubt their salvation. Sometimes they're taught wrong. They get bad doctrine. Um, Sometimes they persist in sins for a long time. They're not letting go of them. Sometimes they have uh, mental health issues. There's all kinds of reasons people doubt their salvation. But we're supposed to know. And we're supposed to have an assurance of God's forgiveness. We're supposed to know that we belong to Christ and he will not let us go. But that assurance comes from relying on God's promises in Christ through his word that Christ really has solved our problem. The internal witness of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that we are God's children, that should be there. And in a very significant way, the reality of the change that he brings about in us, cleansing our inside, that leads us to love him and to follow him, knowing that that's really there in us, that we have a humble and contrite heart before him, that's a sign of being genuine as well. In religion, in salvation, it's the inside that really counts. What has God done in you? Let's pray. Our great Father, humble us. Let our greatest fear be that of becoming a Pharisee.
let us dread self-righteousness and comparing ourselves with other people. Let us see only your holy law as a standard to measure ourselves by. Break us on your law, Lord. Then heal us by the blood of Jesus, our Savior. And change us by the power of your Holy Spirit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.